0: Okay, so we're continuing in the series in Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. If you wrote page numbers on here, it's page 32. If you don't have that, um, it says 5 one at the upper left-hand corner. And yeah, if there's anybody who you've come into this since we've started and you're like, I don't have this book, we have the, the scripture in here, we've got room for notes and other stuff, there's, you can grab one on the way out. We're down to kind of the bottom of the barrel on those. But if you don't have one and would like one, you can do that. On the way out. So, we've been talking about this idea of restoration um, that we're called to be restorers. And so, we're looking at Nehemiah because he was a rebuilder of walls and he was a restorer of the ruins. And we're looking at him as our model and what can we learn from him about how we live that way. So far, we've learned in chapters one and two that we've learned a lot about how Nehemiah personally lived as a restorer and gleaned a lot from that. In chapter three, the focus shifted to the community. And the fact that everybody is needed in the community, that we all have a place, that there are gaps for us to fill outside of these walls, but there's also a gap that he has for us in these walls. And so we looked at that. Chapter four, then, we came the opposition. They entered the storm full on. Nehemiah knew it was coming, and we saw the attacks that he received from outside of the body, outside of the community, and how we dealt with that. And... Um, He handled that very wise and strategically, and so then Nehemiah kind of finishes. Everything was perfect, and they gathered together, held hands, saying kumbaya, right? And it would be great if it happened that way, but that's not how it happens. Um, There's a lot more that's going to happen. We're going to find out today that cracks start to form in the foundation of the community, so it's a really significant chapter. I think it is by God's design that after chapter 4 he put chapter 5 because we're going to see a, a reality that is true of any body of believers that's trying to serve Jesus. So, if you would, we'll be in chapter 5. What I'm going to do is I want to take a few minutes and we're going to look at the problem. Then we're going to look at Nehemiah's response to that problem. We'll look at the people's response then, his example, and then we'll look at his prayer. And you don't have to write all those down right now. We're going to hit those as we go. But um I just have to warn you this morning as we go through this, I'm going to hit the break several times, so I just want you to put your seat belts on, okay? There's going to be times in the middle of a verse. We'll halt for a minute because there's some significant things. So first is the problem, first is the problem, and actually problems plural, and we're in verse 1, and here's what it reads. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Um, I'd like you to put a box around that, great. I'll te- that word great. In a minute, I'll tell you why I'm having you do that. And I'd also like you to circle that word outcry. Um, we're going to see that word again in this chapter, but it's a really important Old Testament word. It particularly occurs in the first two books of the Bible, in the Torah, in Genesis and Exodus, where frequently we will see people who are, who are suffering some kind of oppression and they cry out from that oppression and how the God hears in response that his heart is bent towards those who are suffering oppression. And so this word is extremely significant. And I want you to know the crisis that they're in, the reason for this outcry, it is so significant that it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry. I would underline, and their wives. Because they live in a culture where women were to be seen and not heard. So for the women to speak up meant that this oppression was very heavy, and particularly on them, and I think as we go through the problem, you'll see how true that is. And then one more thing in this first verse, double underline against their fellow Jews, because the outcry was against their fellow Jews. It wasn't against the Samaritans up north. It wasn't against the Ammonites. It wasn't against the Arab League. It wasn't against the people of Ashdod. The cry was against their very own people. So we come to chapter 5 and suddenly there is a huge problem inside the camp in the community of God's people. And Nehemiah successfully thwarted that attack from without, but now he faces a problem this brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor. So let's look at the problem or the problems in verses 2 to 5. I'm going to read straight through these verses. Verse 2, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have been enslaved, but we are powerless. We're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to to others. So I see four major problems that kind of hit these four verses that are going on. First is there were people and families who were just simply, they were unable to feed their families. There was not enough food um, going around. And this was caused by a famine. You can underline in verse 3, the very last part, it says during the famine. So there's a famine that's caused this food shortage. And second in verse 3, we see that due to the famine and spiraling food prices, So we're not the only ones that have this experience. There were landowners who actually, it was so bad, they had to mortgage their property in order to be able to buy food. They actually had to mortgage their property. And third in verse 4, we learned that people were also crying out because the taxes were so high that the Persian king put upon them, they had to borrow money to even pay the taxes, much less to live. Um, The amount of annual tribute that the Persian kings extracted from their conquered territories was Ginormous. It was huge. I mean, that's normally the case when people conquer somebody, right? And most of the money that they extracted from the people went back to Persia. It didn't stay there and it didn't stay locally and help them in any way. It helped the people in Susa and it particularly helped the king and his entourage to live in great luxury. And we also know from the New Testament when you read about Jesus, tax collectors were not popular people back then because they were very corrupt and what they would do is they would take the amount of the tax they were to collect and they would up the price on it because only they knew what they were to collect they'd up the price and they'd skim off the top what they wanted. And so the situation is not good at all. I want you to look down at the end of verse 11 because they're having we're going to see they're mortgaging, they're borrowing money. If you look at verse 11 at the end, it says this, the interest that you are charging them 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So, underline 1%. Um, scholars tell us that was 1% a month. So, they were paying 12% annually, a rate of interest on all the, anything that they had to borrow. Now, for us, this may not seem that bad because some people pay 21% annually on a credit card, right? I know, I already saw somebody like, I can't believe people do that, um, and I won't say much about that. Pat and I always pay as our off when we get it, because we don't want to pay that, okay? But even 12, so 12% is like, you know, uh, whatever, but these are people, I mean, think about most of the people in the world live in such poverty, they're peasants, they cannot afford this. It, it was unsustainable for them, and it was excessive and exorbitant, um, unsustainable. And then finally in verse 5, we learn that the nobles and officials were exploiting their own brothers and sisters by not only taking their land, foreclosing on their land, but they were taking their children and enslaving them. Can you imagine that? Um, Many of the people were heavily in debt, they couldn't pay their debt back, and so they'd lost their property and at times had to sell off their own family. Now, I need to say something about the words slavery and enslaved that occur in verse 5, because that can be misleading. When we think of slavery, we think back to our national experience and we think of what's called chattel slavery, which is the ownership of a human being for the totality of their life based upon race, right? That's our national experience is what's called chattel slavery. That's not what's happening here. When you encounter this word here, um, and in most of the Torah, when it talks about slaves, it's actually talking about indentured servitude, not chattel slavery. And indentured servitude is something that was common in the early part of our history. If you studied our history, you know, back in elementary school, you learn that a lot of poor... The most, most of the people who came here were actually very poor, couldn't afford the passage... So they would find somebody in the States who would sponsor them, who would pay their passage. They would come over here and they would work for seven years as an indentured servant to them to pay off that passage in debt before they could start their own life, right? And that's what this is talking about. Um, it was a very, it was a custom in the world around Israel. This was a very common thing um, to indenture yourself or even your family. Some or all of them um, to a creditor for a period of time to pay off a debt. But in the ancient world, more often than not, the wealthy creditors were charging so much interest on what was borrowed that people ended up getting stuck in their indentured servitude, never got out of it, and never had any sort of real freedom. So it kind of became a sense of of slavery in some sense. But it's indentured servitude that it's talking about. So as you can see, I mean, is this not a crisis situation? Do you not see why the wives are crying? Even the wives are crying out? right? People are they're starving. They don't have enough food. Um, they're paying high taxes. They cannot repay debts. There's so much. People are losing their property left and right. Many of them are having to sell their own silk children into indentured servitude. And one thing I want to say about this, this whole thing, because Nehemiah is recording this, this did not happen because they were building the wall. It was already happening, and the rebuilding of the wall kind of revealed this. It let it come to the forefront, so even before Sanballat and Tobiah started stirring up chapter tr- starting up trouble in chapter 4 this had been going on and likely it had been going on for the hundred years since that first group reti- re- returned from the exile. So I want you to, here's what I want you to know. Cuz last week was about the enemy is always attacking us from without, right? And I want you to know, for decades, the enemy had been stirring up trouble within the believing community to undermine it and to wreck it, to destroy it from within. He had been doing that for a long time. So, we see Nehemiah's response in verses 6 to 13. Verse 6, when I heard their outcry, and there's that word again, so circle that, important word. When I heard this outcry and these charges... I was very angry. So his first response is he was angry. We learn from James 1.20 that human anger rarely brings the righteousness of God and rarely does good for the person who's expressing it or the people that are receiving it. But I want you to know that Nehemiah's anger is justified and it's righteous because he cares about God and His Word. We're going to see this in a minute that his word be followed. He cares about God's reputation. Again, we'll see this in a minute. And he cares very much about the oppressed. He cares very much. If you saw this situation, we don't, you know, I can kind of understand it. I don't feel this situation in my gut, do you? You know, most of the people in the world live in poverty and experience this kind of thing, deep poverty, and I don't, I don't understand it because I've not been, experienced it. But I love the fact that this anger rises up in him because they're violating the law and they're oppressing the poor. And that's, God very much has the poor in his heart. Next, verse 7. So he becomes angry, and then he says, I pondered them. I pondered those charges in my mind. So, Nehemiah, I just, I love this guy. He was angry, but he paused, and he thought before he spoke. The Hebrew word for pondered means to give oneself advice or to give oneself counsel. So he stopped to give himself counsel. Counsel. Um, it's just this is so much like him in chapter two, verses twelve to sixteen. Before he started construction on the wall, or even his plan, he went and checked out the lay of the land. Remember that last week in chapter four, when he was when there were, the attacks were coming, he stopped and he looked at the lay of the land again. And he's doing the same thing, but this time he's looking at the lay of the land of his heart. He's he's doing some self counsel in here. I am sure he thought a lot about the situation. And knowing this guy, don't you know that he prayed about it? He asked God for wisdom and for insight and in how to approach it. I think this pause also gave him time to get control of his feelings, to not let that anger just erupt. Um, self-control is a key virtue for any leader, but especially a shalom bringer and a store. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. So back to verse 7. I pondered them in my mind, And then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So after taking a long pause, he gathers himself, he brings those guys in, and he calls a spade a spade. The rest of verse 7. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. A large meeting. Put a box around that word large, and above it or below it, let me see in my book, There's a little bit of space, either one. Write the word great. It's the same Hebrew word we saw in verse 1 that's translated great. Same word. So there's a great cry. And Nehemiah knows that the only appropriate response is to have a great, a large assembly of all the people. So he calls everybody together. So I called a large meeting to deal with them. Verse 8. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. So we saw in verse 5 that these nobles are, are getting their own people into indentured servitude, right? And here we learned that Nehemiah, when he came back, he actually instituted a policy. He saw people in indentured servitude to the Gentiles, and he instituted a policy where, probably out of his own pocket, we'll see this in a minute, that from his wage as a governor, which again, we'll see in a minute, that he was actually buying, paying off people's debt to get them out of indentured servitude. And he says, we've been doing this, and now I learn that what you're doing is you're, you're buying people back in, and not only are you buying them back into servitude, or you're, you're taking their debts and leveraging it again, but you're then selling them to the Gentiles so you can pocket cash to line your own pockets. Do you see why he's so angry? Do you get what's going on here? And he said, and then the Gentiles only sell them back again, and then it's us trying to give more money to get them out of their indentured servitude. So the end of verse 8. They, referring to the nobles and officials, kept quiet. Don't you love that? Because they could find nothing to say. Crickets. Because they knew. Verse 9. So we continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. And I love Nehemiah, as we've seen as his pattern continually. He puts God first in everything, first things first. And so here's his appeal, and he's going to go to the Lord to to do his appeal. He grounds it in, in his appeal to the people in God. First, he grounds it in obedience to God, to his law and to his word, because he says, this, what you're doing, it's not right. And they know, because they're Jews, they know the Torah like the back of their hand. They know that he's appealing to the law of the Lord, that that's what he's appealing to. You know, in a broken post-fall world, poverty is inevitable. It's inevitable. But God is clear in the law, in his Torah, that the Jews who had wealth were not to use their wealth and somebody else's financial misfortune for their own benefit. He was very clear on that. In fact, God, the law, I would say, is crystal clear. It is crystal clear that when a person is in need, that a person was not to leverage that into a money-making enterprise for themselves. But if somebody was in need, they would see that as a means to help them out of compassion and love for that person. The Torah is really clear on that. So one, they were to charge absolutely no interest, zero, zilch, nada. They were not allowed in the Torah to do that. Two, that if a loan required security, they were doing it; they were to do it in a compassionate way. And I'm going to show you some Old Testament Scripture very briefly. I'm just going to show you the references, and you can even read specifically how they were to do Torah, I mean security, in a way that was compassionate. And then three, there was to be no enslavement of people. Now, indentured servitude was allowed, that somebody to pay off a large debt, that they could indenture themselves to a creditor. But the Torah was very clear that if somebody did that to me, I was not to treat them as a slave that was common in a lot of those cultures, but it says specifically, I treat them as a hired worker. I treat them as if they were a hired worker. Um, if you want these later, I can give them to you, but these are the parts of the Torah that talk about interest and security and indentured servitude. So he, he, he appeals to them based on obedience to the Word of God. Secondly, out of reverence to God. He says, "Should't you walk in the fear of the Lord? Underline that. We're going to come to this kind of thing again in a minute, and I'm going to come back to it at the end. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? And if you remember, I talked about this in, the, in Psalm 19 this summer, that fear of Lord, Robert Alter, the Hebrew scholar, says it refers to a deep-on reverence for God, a deep-on reverence for God. It's not a servile fear that like... 400 years ago, a slave would have had to a master. It is the respect and awe that a child has for a parent. That's what it's referring to. But if we truly fear the Lord, if we really hold him up with the awe and respect and reverence, we should. We take him seriously, and we take his word seriously, right? We want him to be honored and to be famous, and we want to be obedient to his word. And this reverence for God, it's what motivated him in his life. You might write beside that on the side, Nehemiah one eleven, in his prayer at the very beginning of the book, he talked about that his desire of his heart, his longing, was that God's name be revered, and we're going to see this theme again in verse fifteen. And then third, he grounds his appeal in a concern for God's reputation. In Deuteronomy four, God told the Jewish people they were intended to be a model community for the nations to see. In Isaiah. God, through Isaiah, told them that he created them, designed them, and wanted them to be a light to the nations. But instead, what they're doing is they're bringing reproach on God because they're living the same way as the nations around them. And they're actually doing the same thing, the same pattern that the Jewish people did before the exile, and it took them into exile, where Isaiah said to them, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's like, don't you, like, obey God. Fear him, respect him, and we need to care about his reputation, right? So that's his appeal. Verse 10 I and my brothers and my men, we're also lending the people money and grain. So he's saying, We've been lending people to help out of love, but we're not charging, we haven't been charging interest because that's against the Torah. And then the rest of verse 10 but let us stop charging interest. He's like, This is done. We're done with this. We're finished. Look at verse 11, give back to them immediately their fields, underline that, immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, the interest that you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So he's saying, give back all the interest you've made off of them. Give them back their fields, their property. And I think what's insinuated is let their people go out of an interest servitude to you. Nehemiah was smart. He knew that this wouldn't solve the underlying economic problems, right? The famine. He couldn't take care of that. But he knew it would ease the suffering and it would give those in poverty a fresh start. And the Torah talks about that. It had instituted the year of Jubilee and every seven years of rest where God every seven years is like, you let people out of their debt, they get their property back, fresh start for everybody, fresh start for everybody, Verse 12, the officials respond, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Yea, Nehemiah. But he's a smart guy. (laughs) So verse, the rest of verse 12, then I summon the priests. He's like, bring the religious dudes in. And I made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. So he said to all of them, all right, give your scouts honor on this. If you've ever been a boy scout, you kind of get that. We're all going to make an oath. And then verse 13, I also shook out the folds of my robe, and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. This was a common Middle Eastern custom, which emphasized the seriousness of an oath How serious you should take it, but say, God takes this seriously. You don't want to go against an oath before the Lord. And so now we come to the people's response in the rest of verse 13. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. So be it. Make it so. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Isn't that great? Those officials and nobles did as they had promised. So, mission accomplished. So, the whole affair was dealt with, community moving it back to being restored. But I want you to know, if Nehemiah hadn't stepped into this situation, Satan would have likely used it to divide the whole community against itself and to ultimately halt the rebuilding of the wall. That was his intent, was to divide the community to stop the work that they were doing. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And then Nehemiah then talks about the example that he personally set for the whole community in all the rest of the chapter except verse 19. So he says, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years. So stop there, put on the brakes. I just want you to know Nehemiah was not just charged with rebuilding the walls. He was actually made governor of Judah when Artaxerxes sent him. And now we're going to learn a lot about his leadership style, specifically his servant leadership. So the rest of verse 14, 15. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people. They took 40 shekels or one pound of silver from them in addition to food and wine. The people before exploited the people, but not me. I didn't even use the budget that I was given from tax dollars. I didn't even use it. Kind of like George Washington in the Revolutionary War. I funded myself. The rest of verse 15. Their, meaning the predecessor's assistance, so their assistance, they also lorded it over people. But out of reverence for God, would you underline that? We're back to that theme of the fear of the Lord. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Again, motivated by his deep love and reverence for God. He didn't throw his weight around, but he was a servant leader. Verse 16, instead, I devoted myself, strong word, devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. So he's saying, like everybody else, I gave my blood, my sweat, and my tears to the rebuilding of this wall, and so did all of my men around me. We saw that in chapter 14, chapter 4, if you remember last week. And then verse 16, we did not acquire any land. So he's like, though, while in Jerusalem, I came with power as a governor, with money from Persia, but I didn't use it, leverage it in any way with anybody in poverty to acquire a single piece of land. That's not my way, because that's not the way of Yahweh. And then he goes on in verses 17 and 18, furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In in spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. And so even though he had an expense account that was taxpayer-funded, he never used it. He could have justly used that compensation, but he didn't. And he was regularly having huge numbers of people from outside and inside of the city at his own table, all at his own expense. Don't you just love this guy? He's not abusing his power, he's not building his own kingdom, but he put the people ahead of himself, using his privilege and his power to serve others, sacrificing personal gain for the sake of the community. He's just like Jesus who said in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, 27, I am among you as one who serves, as one who serves. And then Nehemiah closes this chapter with a prayer. He closes with a prayer. Remember me, it's verse 19, remember me with favor, my God, for all I've done for these people. I mean, he's a man of prayer. The Prayer has to make it into the chapter, right? And I think it's such a simple and powerful prayer I think what he's saying is, is, I'm not doing this for the praise of the people, Lord. That's not my motivation. I, want, I live for your pleasure and your smile. And I'm doing it because I, I love you, but I, I love them and I care about them. I, I am seeking the peace and prosperity of this city. So would you please remember me? And I think he knew more challenges were coming because they always come. Do they not? Wait till he gets to chapter six, all right? So he says, would you please give me your favor? I need your favor so desperately. Great chapter. Isn't Nehemiah good? The whole book. So as I ponder this chapter, here's what I learned. And it was a good reminder for me. That perhaps more than outward opposition, Satan will seek to stop and destroy the work of God from within the community. From within the community. He is so shrewd. He not only attacks from the outside, but he tries to get an attack from the inside. And he works overtime. Don't you know? He works overtime. Scott and I were just talking about this before the service, earlier today, how he works overtime, generating strife and fissures within the believing community. As we saw, Sanballat and Tobiah had been at work outside the community, but long before that, Satan was at work undermining the community from within. And I want you to know this, I don't, want to be, I don't want to be a downer, but here's the reality that I so easily forget. Satan is working even now to undermine this body. Even now. I don't know where, but I know him, and he's always at work trying to seek to wreck this body so that we are not living on mission with God. So, here's what I gained. I learned that from this chapter, and then I gained something else. That to withstand the schemes of the enemy... A strong church body is paramount. It is paramount. To be a restorer, for me and for you to be a restorer, it is essential that we have a strong base of operation. It's essential. I've climbed some mountains, nothing like Mount Everest. And to be successful to climb Mount Everest, you have to have the support of a strong base, of that strong base camp. And it's true with us. We have to be a strong base camp to help empower us as we reach outside of these four walls. And so for the work of God to move forward as God intends, we need to be a church body that is healthy and unified. For the work of God to move forward, we need to be a a body that is healthy and that's unified. So first, we need to be healthy. And here's what I learned from this text, that a healthy body is one that's centered on God, on His fame, and on His Word. It's centered on Him. A place where God is feared, where He's revered, where He is held in such high regard that we take His Word seriously and we obey it, we live it. We saw that in verse 9 and in verse 15. The New Testament speaks of the church gathered, which is what we are this morning, But it also speaks of the church scattered, which is living outside of these four walls. As the church scattered, it's where we're living Monday to Saturday and actually most of Sunday, right, where we live, work, study, and play. Most of our time is living as the church scattered, living on mission with God, joining Him in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. And as the church gathered, here's what our heart and our mission is is that we would become a biblical community of kingdom people here. We say this every morning, Sunday. Jordan just said it. We long to become a biblical community of kingdom people. That's a way of saying we long to be healthy and unified because we're about the kingdom. But the Bible is central to what we do, and we want to be a people who are about the king and living for him and his kingdom. Um, the Word of God is so central to that. We see this in here, him calling them back to obedience to the Torah. Um, talking to Scott this morning, he said something really cool. I, don't, I think you said these words. If not, they came to my mind. But he was reminded of the spiritual battle and of Ephesians 6. And he says, we've got to armor up. Right? As his body, we've got to armor up. And second, as a church body, we need to be Unified. And a unified body is one that's centered on God and unified around His mission. For them, they were centered on Yahweh, and their mission was the rebuilding of the wall. For us, we are centered on Yahweh in human flesh, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and on His mission of restoring all things back to Himself. That's what we're unified around. And a unified body is also one where God's people see themselves as family. We see ourselves as family. Let me show you in this chapter. Look at verse five. If you're doing this box thing, whatever. I want you to put a box around the word "fellow." Um, it's kind of towards the left. Blood as our fellow Jews. Put a around the box around, a box around the word "fellow." Drop down to verse seven. Are you charging your own people, interest? Put a box around people. Verse eight. On the very left-hand side, it talks about fellow Jews. Put a box around the word "fellow." And right under that is the word people. Put a box around the word people. So we've boxed fellow people, fellow people. In the Hebrew, that's one word, and it's the word brother. He keeps talking in his appeal. Why are you doing this to your brother, to your brother, to your brother, to your brother? He is emphasizing the fact that we are to be a family. And family cares about each other, right? Through thick and thin, it's hard. If you've got a family, you know it's not always easy. But through thick and thin. And when we quit seeing ourselves as brothers and sisters, then we devolve into self-interest. This unity of the body, it is a high priority for Jesus. In fact, I would say it's like priority number one. And I would say this because in his prayer for us, he asked for one thing when he prayed for us. In John 17, 20 and 21. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be, can you say that word with me? One. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And the early church in Acts took this seriously. In Acts 2.44 says all the believers were together and had everything in common. And in Acts 4.32 it says all the believers were, what? One in heart and mind. And Paul took this seriously. This theme of unity runs through most every letter he wrote to churches. I'm going to give you a few. In his letter to the Roman believers, Romans 12, 12 and 18, he says, Live in harmony with one another as far as it depends on you. As far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. In Philippians 2, 2 to 5, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being what? What? one in spirit and one in mind and of one mind do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others and then he would continues in your relationships with others have the mind of Christ right Colossians 3, 12 and 14, powerful scripture. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In fact, this is so important to Paul that two times in two different letters, he specifically says, tells us to make every effort to keep the unity of the body. In Romans fourteen nineteen, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. In Ephesians 4, 2 to 3, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. God cares about unity, doesn't he? I want to tell you a key word in the New Testament, I think, that creates a healthy, unified body. It's my favorite word, one of the words that occurs most, more than most any other word, and it's the word grace. Grace. Because as we're living to be restores, is any of us perfectly going to live that out? Any of us? Anybody here? As you're trying to be restored restore at home or at work or in your neighborhood, wherever you find yourself... We're all going to stumble, we're all going to fall, we're all going to fail, are we not? So do we not as a body need to show each other grace that when we stumble and fall that we're not going to trash each other, we're not going to point it out, we're not going to you know, put a finger in the chest or whatever, but we're going to give each other grace because we're all on the same path and we all stumble and fall, is that not right? We're all trying to follow Jesus, stumbling towards Him. We're all, as we try to live this out, loving Him, living on mission, we're all living three steps forward, two steps back. And so we need to show each other grace. Um, I'm sure you've heard, you know, there's always people looking for the perfect church, right? And I don't know if you've heard this, but they say, if you ever find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it, okay? We're all imperfect. So can we show each other grace and forbearance? We're going to turn to the Lord's table. Several, two and a half years ago, I taught on the Lord's table and I said that in the Scripture on it, I found four primary purposes, and I'm not going to hit the first three, but one of them is that the Lord's table is powerfully unifying. When we gather around this, it is unifying. In 1 Corinthians 10:17, Paul says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So this morning as we come to the table, can we let this be a visual reminder of our need to fight for the unity of this body? Let's let it do that. I'd like to invite those who are serving to um, come to their tables. And as we're doing that, um, yeah, today I still want you to do head, heart, and hands. Do it afterwards. Be thinking and asking the question, what am I most, what I most learned today? What was the most important thing? But always the most important thing is what's God speaking to me? How's he tapping me on the shoulder? How's he speaking to my heart? And what am I, I going to do about it? In 1 Corinthians 11:28, 28, Paul says that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup, because we're not to take this lightly, because it represents his death on our behalf. So we want to take a minute, and I want to invite you to reflect. And so can we just close our eyes, bow our heads? And I've got two kind of areas I really want us to reflect on this morning first one is this. I mean, this is the big one, the big thing. How are you doing on those two things? On those two things. How's your health? How's your soul? How's your walk with God? And secondly, how are you personally doing on this unity thing? Are you making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace at this place we call 12th Avenue. Where are you on that one? Anyone who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior is free to come and take this table. You don't have to be a member of this church or a regular attender here. I want you to take as long as you need to, to pray and reflect. If you need more time, do that. Um, when you come to the table, the servers are going to say a few things to you. They're going to offer you bread. They're going to offer you the the fruit of the grape, right? That's my way of saying fruit juice, okay? They're going to ask you to take and eat and say a few more words over you. So... Don't be in a rush, even if there's a line behind you. When you're done, you can leave the cup here at the table, okay? But we're not in a hurry. If you need a gluten-free option, it's on the back to my right, back with Evan and Brandy on the south side of the building. They're in the red and blue. Um, I'd like to read Scripture. Luke 2213 to 20 reads this way. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and he gave it to them. And Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Take, drink so as you feel ready feel free to approach any of the six tables that we have do you know why Nehemiah put chapter 5 in here or God through Nehemiah it's because I think we need we need to remind of this we tend to think of Satan working on the outside to attack us isn't that our main way of thinking about it and I think the reality is is he's working much more ardently within to destroy us from within So this reminder that this is how Satan operates, that he wants to generate strife and fractions within this body. And that's why having a strong body is so important. We need a strong base camp if we want to live on mission with him. We need to be a body that is healthy and strong. And that means each of us needs to be healthy, right, and unified. And each of us needs to be working for the unity of the body. So 12th, we're on a big mission. We're called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. To be restorers of ruins, rebuilders of walls all around us, right? That's what we're called to be. So may we, may we do so doing the best of our ability to help make this a strong body, right? Strong base camp. We commit to that. You say amen to that. Okay. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this chapter, for this, the wisdom that I find in here. Um, It is scary to know that there is a lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, and he's looking to devour whole bodies of Christ, churches all over the globe. So, Lord, help us to be aware of that. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to become a biblical community of kingdom people, that we would be a healthy body that's unified around your mission of joining you in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. We desperately need your help. This is bigger than us, and we need you to be with us. So we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent to be the church scattered.